Uh, it's good to see everybody. Uh, my name is Robert. If you're a guest with us this morning, I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Uh, we are glad that you are here with us. Um, I'll let you guys know, so many of you have asked, thank you for asking. Uh, we had a fantastic vacation last week. Um, we went on our first ever family vacation uh, and were spoiled uh, beyond belief by my family in Southern California. Um, they flew us out to Southern California and uh, spoiled us for seven days. So we had an unbelievable time. Uh, very relaxing, uh, bittersweet to leave. It was so much fun. None of us actually wanted to come back. Uh, but at the same time, we wanted to get back here because we missed being home. Uh, and I missed seeing you guys last week. It was very strange on Sunday morning last week uh, to not be here. Like last Sunday was the first, sun, no, the second Sunday in the history of the church, which is just two years, but I haven't been here. So even if I haven't preached, if Raymond or Chris has preached, I've been here. So that was just the second time on Sunday I wasn't in the vicinity of the building. Um, and it was really strange. Uh, but we were vacationing for the Lord in Santa Monica on Sunday. So um, <laughs> I read my Bible by the pier, <laughs> had hot coffee. Um, Thought about, thought about you, and, and prayed for you some. Um, but we were glad to be back, um, tremendously relaxed, um, happy to be, uh, to be back in Richmond. Um, if you see me doing a lot of sitting down and standing up and wincing, um, my body was still relaxed from California. And yesterday, my back didn't know we were back. Um, and so when I was playing with my daughter, uh, she went that way, and I went that way, and my feet stayed still, and my my back got caught in the midst of the confusion and laziness, and um, I did something nasty to it. Um, I wasn't actually even able to really stand up last night. Um, so by God's grace, um, I'm able to get up this morning. Um, nice, thankful pharmaceutical painkillers um, are making me sweat, um, but getting us through this morning. So if you see me wince, it might not be the scriptures. Um, LAUGHTER Although what we will talk about this morning in Ecclesiastes does make me wince sometimes, um, but it's probably my back. And so I'll be standing up and sitting down, and if you're a guest with us, you, it probably means nothing to you, but um, on normal occasions, I wander around the aisles, and I'm prone to get lost somewhere out there, but I probably won't be doing that today. So it's good to see you. Uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful uh, for what God's doing here and the uh, Really the opportunity that we have, even two years in, to be able to get away as a family, um, that God has given us such an amazing group of people and capable men and pastors to be able to leave, just go, and not think about it at all. I honestly didn't think about it at all. I left my computer in Richmond. Um, we turned the phone off. Uh, I did not think about it, and it was an amazing gift of, of God's grace to us in the church. So uh, thank you, and I heard things went really well, and um, well, I'm glad to see you again. If you got your Bibles... Open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We have taken the spring uh, to work our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, one of the most often neglected, um, most often misunderstood and avoided books of the Bible, um, but one of the most hope-instilling, uh, reality-giving, um, illusion-shaking books in the entire scriptures, and that's what our hope has been, is, as we've titled the series, Losing Our Illusions. Our hope is that God would, by His grace and, and through His Spirit, use Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes to shake us from the illusions that have captured our heart. We've talked a lot about the fact that if you ever want to really hope truly and deeply in what can never actually deceive, you have to first lose hope in everything that does deceive. 
And the book of Ecclesiastes has been a step-by-step deconstruction of all the things that we so easily get deceived by and all the places we so easily find ourselves chasing satisfaction and meaning and purpose and joy in this life from. So hopefully it's been helpful. We're coming towards the end of it. This morning we're going to be in chapter 9, and it's going to be somewhat of a recap of themes that we've hit before. And here's the thing about Ecclesiastes. He does this a lot. He comes back around to ideas that he's talked about before, and it's not because he's forgotten that he's actually talked about them, but it's because we have such a hard time actually listening to them. We have such a hard time actually dealing with what he has to say. And here's the thing about the text this morning. It's not going to be complicated. I mean, it's really not complicated. He's not going to say anything that takes any extensive level of logic and reasoning to understand. The problem is our hearts. We don't want to actually listen to it. Much of what Solomon has said throughout the entire book has been simple to understand, but very hard to actually believe and accept. And so this morning, there's nothing that's going to come at you out of left field. It's going to be a, a, really a, a, a rehashing of things we've talked about in the past. But my prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for us and everybody that encounters this text is that God would just incline the, our ears and our hearts and our souls to listen. And we would continue to do what we talk about week in and week out, that we would take this time to surrender to the truths of the Scriptures. Our souls, our wills, our minds, we just want to surrender them to what God has to say to us through his scriptures. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Father, thank you for this unbelievable privilege uh, that we have again, week in and week out, to gather as your people. To be called to this place, to have the privilege to meet in this place, to have the privilege to be encouraged by one another, to have the privilege together as a community to surrender our our collective and our individual souls and wills to your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have of being your church, being transformed by your grace into the image of your son. Thank you for the privilege of being your church and as your instrument to declare your glory and reflect your greatness to a, a watching world. Thank you for that privilege, Lord. Let us never lose sight of it. Let us never take it for granted. Let us never become to feel entitled by it but help us to see what an act of grace it is. And this morning, Lord, by your, by your grace and Lord, by your spirit, help us to see the reality of the life that we live in a fallen world through this text. And help us to see the true hope, the true comfort, the true joy, the deep and lasting satisfaction that's to be found in trusting and knowing you. That's what we ask, that's what we want. We want to be a people who are deep. I want to be a person who is deep, whose joy comes from deep places whose soul is rooted deeply in a trust and a hope in who you are. That's what I ask that you do this morning. Use your word as only you can do it in the time that we have. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Here's the thing. Here's the question that's going to sit kind of as the backdrop for the morning. It's going to kind of frame everything we're going to talk about so you can keep it in your mind as we go through Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Here's the question. Would you live differently? If you knew when you were going to die, would you live your life today, tomorrow, and the next day differently if you knew you were going to die? Here's the thing that Solomon's going to talk about this morning. I'm going to go ahead and unpack it for you before we go into the text. Solomon is going to take great pains to wake us up to the reality of the life that we live in this world. He's going to take great pains to give us a heavy dose of biblical realism to face the reality of the mortality of our physical bodies and the careless ways in which we live our life here on this earth. Solomon is going to compel us, and I pray that we listen. He is going to compel us and urge us to live our life right here and right now as though the very next breath that we take is our last. 
Solomon, by God's grace, is going to compel us to live with what we talk about around here as the urgency of eternity. So I ask, and I want you to keep it in the back of your mind as we go through this, how would you live differently? Would you live differently if you knew when you were going to die? See, the problem that we face with all of this and the problem that he's going to unpack in this is that life comes comes at us every single day with all kinds of twists and turns and unexpected circumstances and situations problems and frustrations that come into our life that we hadn't planned for, and we have to respond to them appropriately. There's a way in which we have to understand those circumstances and situations, a way we have to see them fitting into a bigger picture that will give us an appropriate response to those things. But life is full of all kinds of unexpected twists and turns, and we really don't know what's coming next. Nobody really knows what is going to happen to them next. You might think you do, but you really don't know. And the only certainty that you have is that one day you're going to die. That's the only certainty that you've got in what's going to happen next or down the road for you. The mortality rate is still 100%. That's the only thing you know for certain. So in the midst of the reality of the unexpected, in the midst of the limits of your own wisdom and your own knowledge and your own understanding, how will we live? How will we respond? How should we live? You see, I think if we knew, and I would hope this would be the case, but if you knew when you were going to die, I think you would probably live differently. I think you would probably live differently. I know there are things in my life that I would probably do differently. And here's the thing, why do we wait? And why would that change it? We know one day we will die. We don't know when that day is going to come. But the problem is because we have taken so much of what we have in this life for granted, the next breath, the family, the friends, the job, the home, we live as though we have an endless supply of those things. And because we live carelessly with an endless supply, we we find ourselves living without depth. We find ourselves tossed about by the circumstances and the situations and the frustrations. And Solomon Solomon wants to help us live differently this morning. Solomon wants to help us wake up to those realities. Shake us out of our complacency. Shake us out of our carelessness. And the only way he can do that is by putting the reality right back in front of us again. And he's going to do it. But then he wants to urge us and compel us to live differently. Solomon wants us to think biblically about this life. About the uncertainty. About the frustrations. About the unexpected and about the one thing that we do know for certain, death. What's going to happen? He wants us to think biblically about those things and respond to them biblically. He wants us to see and he compels us to live our life in a joyful, hopeful, satisfied response to a good God, to a good God who oversees all of his creation. He wants us to derive a deep hope and trust and joy from knowing who God is, how we relate to him, and how understanding those things should compel us and urge us to live differently today. You see, for the one, for those of us who can continue to increasingly draw comfort from the reality of God's care over his people and over his world, for those who can increasingly derive comfort from the character of God and the interaction with God and the relationship with God. For those, the circumstances in life and the unexpected and even death itself take on a completely different light. 
even the unexpected becomes places of finding meaning. Even the unexpected become places of finding joy. Even in the hurts and the struggles and the frustration, even in those, there are moments of grace. There are treasures of grace in the midst of those circumstances that bring us back to the reality of who God is and who we are in relation to him. And in that, even in those circumstances, we can find comfort. So Solomon wants us to see life as it is. I mean, open your eyes to the reality of what you already know exists, the world that you already face. And in light of that, let's respond to it differently. That's what he wants. So hopefully I've talked long enough for you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Now we're going to actually go through it. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. Solomon is going to start by just giving us some stark biblical reality. Here's what he says. Verse 1. But all of this I, I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So here's what he's saying. Solomon is saying, first and foremost, everything that I've said, everything that we've looked at, everything that I've already told you about, I want to try to explain it to you this way. This is what he's saying. Here's how I want to actually explain it. The righteous man, the wise man, the wise, the wise and righteous woman, those who have been transformed by the grace of God, those who call themselves children of God, those lives, those souls, those people find themselves in the hand of the good, creative, sovereign God. God is providentially caring for and watching over all of his creation. And those who are righteous, those who are wise, those who have been transformed and made that way by God's grace find themselves and their lives in his hands. And nothing comes into your life that does not first pass through the hands of this good God. And that is not a fatalistic statement. That's a statement of providence and a statement of great comfort for those who can begin to derive joy in that. God is actively and lovingly involved in the care of his people. He is actively and lovingly involved in the care of his purposes throughout all of what we talk about around here as redemptive history. And when you realize this, when you realize that nothing befalls your life, that does not pass through the hands of this good and sovereign God, it begins to change the way, change the way that you view these circumstances, the way that you view your life, the way that you view the twists and the turns that will come into your world. Realizing this changes your, your perspective. And you need this perspective. You need this perspective. You need to increasingly grow in the comfort and knowledge and understanding of God's care over your life. Because what Solomon says next is you, you don't know what's going to come next. You need to grow in a comfort and a security in God's care for your life. Because you, you don't know what's going to come next. You're not that smart. Look what he says in verse 2 or the end of verse 1 and in verse 2. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So what he said is that the righteous, the wise, those who, who are children of God, whose lives are in the hands of God, who God is providentially and sovereignly caring for and caring towards his good purposes, nothing comes into their life that does not pass through God's hands. But here's what they know. They don't know what's coming next. 
The one thing you can know is you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what people are going to say about you, how, what kind of treatment you're going to receive. Being righteous, being wise, being transformed by God's grace into the likeness of his son Jesus does not guarantee you anything, any kind of preferential treatment in this life. The righteous, the wise, they do not know what awaits them next, love or hate. They don't know what the next person they're going to run into, how they're going to respond to them, how they're going to be treated. And here's one of the things that just frustrates me, and I think we have to take a a sidebar on this one. It's one of the things that's most alarmingly disappointing and frustrating in the evangelical church, church world right now, is this idea that those who have put their hope and their faith in Christ and who are being transformed into his image by God's grace should only expect good things in this life. There's this unbelievably dangerous heresy being taught from some of the largest churches and pulpits in this country and being exported to countries all across this world that says when you put your hope and when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you should only expect expect good things to happen. And it's a heresy. It's a heresy. It says only if you trust Jesus and and do these things and do these right things and obey in this way and put your hope in him, then only good things come your way. And when bad things come your way, frustration comes your way. When that thing falls apart, when that sickness ravages your body or someone that you love, no, 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 no. You must have done something wrong. Because you're a child of God, therefore you should only expect good things, which means when something bad comes into your life, you must have done something wrong. Or the devil must have been stronger than God. So it's either the devil that you've got to defeat or you've done something wrong. Either way, you've got to fix it. And it's this unbelievably damning heresy that people are buying up hook, line, and sinker by the truckloads in this country. And the greatest problem that I have with it, aside from the false hope that it gives people, and the illusion that it entraps them in, the biggest problem that I've got with it is the Bible itself. The Bible has the biggest problem with that particular heresy that people seem to be buying all over this country. Jeremiah has a huge problem with that. When he was stripped naked and beaten and thrown down to the bottom of the well to prophesy on behalf of God, he had a huge problem with good things not coming across his plate. When John the Baptist was beheaded and served on a platter to Herod for prophesying and for preaching the good news of the coming king, he has a huge problem. A huge problem with that. The book of Hebrews. I I, I don't know. Some of you might like this stuff, so let me just tell you. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 35, starting the second part of verse 35, said some, talking about saints of the church in former days, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. This is what the Bible says about those who have suffered at the hands of others for the sake of Christ. Those, those people, the world was not worthy of them. They were wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves. Biggest problem I have about this absolutely rubbish nature of this heresy that people are buying into is the Bible. Because nothing, nothing is promised to you in that way. You do not know what is coming next, whether you'll be loved or whether you'll be hated. 
And I loved what, what Ian Proven, great pastor and, and scholar, said about this. He said, to teach this kind of heresy is to insult every believer throughout history who has known death, illness, poverty, and misery. And to press this theology onto the sick and poor of today is to place a millstone around the neck of those who are drowning rather than offering them the hope and the comfort of the gospel. God is much more concerned to make us holy and to shape us in the image of his, uh, of his son than to make us happy, wealthy, and healthy. So what Solomon is saying in the very beginning is that to each of us, both wise and foolish, both righteous and unrighteous, all of us will experience the full range of, of life in this earth. All of us will experience love. All of us will experience hate. Being righteous doesn't guarantee you anything other than that in this life. I mean, let me hear, this is my soapbox for the week. It's painkillers. Let me hear one of those guys preach 2 Corinthians 12. I mean, let me hear one of those pastors actually stand up in his pulpit, spewing all that nonsense out to people, and let him deal with 2 Corinthians 12 and let him deal with Paul. You know 2 Corinthians 12? Listen to 2 Corinthians We'll go all over the Bible this morning. 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to Paul. Paul said three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this particular thorn that God had given him, that God had placed in his life. Frustration. That it should leave me. But this is what God said to me. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'll be content in those things. For when I am weak, then, then I am strong. We talk a lot around here about being a people who are increasingly identified by displaying God's strength in our weakness, and this is the reality of that. It's displaying an increasing hope and trust and faith and comfort in who God is and in seeing that nothing that befalls us in our life does not first pass through his hands and understanding who he is in relation to that and who we are in relation to him allows us at that point to not boast in our strengths but to accept the life that we have that comes from his hands and look at the weakness that we have and be able to proclaim that even in that circumstance, even in that weakness, even in this frustration and unexpected providence that's come our way, I am weak. And when I can own that, it's in that moment that God begins to be strong in us in those circumstances. We have to be a people who are increasingly capable and willing and desirous to display God's strength in our weakness. Solomon is just throwing very cold water onto our, onto our souls, onto our lives, and onto these illusions that we so get, easily get wrapped up in. Your life is in the hand of God, the good God who has ordained all that is and who is moving all of history towards his great redemptive purpose. Your life is in his hands, and nothing comes through his hands into your life without first coming through. I just twisted that around. You've got to get comfort from that because you don't know. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know what awaits you. Time and, and life are bound to happen. This is what he says, verse 11. You can flip over. We're going we're gonna to bounce around in chapter 9. Verse 11. Solomon said, again, I saw that under the sun, in this life here on this earth, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong 
nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance will happen to them all. So you don't know what's ahead. And even the wisdom that you do have and the reasoning that you do have and the understanding that you do have, it's going to fail you at some point. At some point, the slower runner, runner wins the race. At some point, somebody pulls a hamstring in the middle of the race and the unexpected comes and wins. At some point, the weak warrior beats the strong king. At some point, what looks like natural cause and effect, what looks to be so understandable, what you put all this hope and, and trust in being able to figure out about this world is ultimately going to fall at some point. Even your wisdom isn't enough. Solomon has unpacked this. We've spent a lot of time on this. This is a place where so many of us put our hope for meaning and security and it's our capacity to understand and know and gain control, to be able to understand how we can control the world around us by our wisdom. And he's saying that even in that, ultimately in this life, it's going to fail you. Again, don't bank your hope on your wisdom, on your knowledge, and on your understanding. Look at verse 13. I've also seen this. This example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against us. Now, do you understand what he's saying there? A little bit of military history. Do you you get what he's talking about? When a king comes and besieges a city and builds siege works around that city, what's happening is there's this, this little town that doesn't have enough men. He's talking about warriors. There's not enough soldiers or warriors to fight to defend this little town. And a great king has come up on this little town, and he's besieged it. And when you would besiege a city, what you would do is you would build structures around the city as you invaded the city that you wouldn't let the hurt people out or let food or water in. So basically, you would just starve a people out of their place. You would besiege it and build siege works. And so here was a a people, a little city, with no hope. And a great king who had taken this city and had besieged it and was starving their existence out. And this is what Solomon says. But there was found in it a poor wise man. And by his wisdom, he delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Here's what he's saying. He said, by God's grace, you have been made wise. You have been made righteous, but, but don't expect anybody to pat you on the back for that. Don't expect anybody to congratulate you for the wisdom that God has given you. Don't expect anybody to pat you on the back for the grace of God that he's shown in your life. And don't look for your ultimate reward, your ultimate trust, your ultimate security in your wisdom, because ultimately it will fail, your, fail you. And though your wisdom may be superior to, to folly, Your wisdom may be superior to to foolishness. Sometimes it's ignored. Sometimes your wisdom is not listened to. Sometimes people don't take your wisdom into account when they make decisions. And sometimes your wisdom is defeated by sin. This is just the reality. This is just what happens. Wisdom is superior. But that's no guarantee that wisdom will be accepted by fools. That's what Solomon is saying. So your life is in the hands of the good and sovereign God. And nothing comes into your life that doesn't first pass through his hands. But here's the deal. You've got to get secure in that. We've got to get comfortable in that. We have to find hope and joy in that because you don't know what's coming next. You don't know what awaits you. Love, hate, 
joy, pain, and even your wisdom, what you can look at with your best understanding of the world around you, you can't bank on it. Because sometimes what you expect doesn't happen. Sometimes David beats Goliath. Sometimes the U.S. national soccer team makes it to the finals of an international tournament. You you can't bank bank on that. I mean, have you watched the Confederations Cup? The worst display of American soccer in the history of international soccer in the last 30 years. They were horrible. They had to beat one of the best teams in the country and have one of the other best teams in the country beat Brazil by three goals. And lo and behold, it happened. You can't bank on your wisdom. Sometimes the unexpected happens. So you best learn to trust and find comfort in the one who does understand. Who does understand. So scripture, Solomon, he says this. This is what he's saying. Not tough to understand, but you're going to have to own it. He said, I know the deeds that God watches over all the lives and the deeds of those whom he loves. But none of you, none of you know what tomorrow will bring. And we need to approach life today and tomorrow. We need to approach life expecting the unexpected. We need to approach life expecting the unexpected. We need to approach life expecting the frustrations that will come into your life. You need to approach life expecting the pain that will come into your life. You don't know what's coming. It might be joy. It might be great blessing. It might be fantastic happiness. It might be frustration. You don't know. So you need to approach it expecting the unexpected. But there is, he says, one thing you do know for certain. With that being said, that dose of reality being said, He said, there is one thing you do know for certain, and you've got to own this too. Death awaits all of us. We've loved this topic throughout Ecclesiastes, haven't we? How many of you have gone and planned for that day now since we've been talking about this? Death. Death awaits all of us. It's going to happen. Look at verse 2. Solomon said, this is the same for all of us. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. He's covering everybody here. Get the picture. You would have read this back then. You would have heard everybody in the room is covered in this. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Death comes to us all. It's a certainty that we have to own. It's a certainty that we have to own. We know intellectually that we're mortal. We know intellectually that one day we will die. But the reality of it is, every decade that goes on in the 21st century, we get further and further away from feeling like it's really going to happen to us. And we know someday intellectually it's going to happen. We have to die. and Some of us are hoping they'll figure out a way to, to do an end run around that. And we go to great lengths to prolong it, to try to push it away and keep it away. And we get haunted by the occasional news report of the marathon runner who's won 
five New York City marathons, who is 34 years old and comes home from his morning jog and drops dead of a heart attack in his kitchen. It's not supposed to happen like that. But you don't know what's coming. You don't know. But we do know that death is a certainty for all of us, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, the faithful and the unfaithful, the good and the sinner, the loyal keeper of God's covenant and the disloyal covenant breaker. Solomon is forcing this reality. He's got to push it hard onto us to some degree beat beat it into our hearts and into our minds because we so want to keep it away. We so want to keep it at bay. But yet it's one of God's great gifts to us now to transform the way that we live here and the way that we understand who he is and the way we understand how we relate to him. The thing that Solomon is trying to get us to by pressing this reality home so hard is he wants to get us to a place where we can say, here is my answer for that. You've got to have an answer to how you understand death. You've got to have an answer to how you understand death and how it impacts your life because that answer will fundamentally change the way that you live your life right now. And the fact that so many of us avoid it, so many of us push it away, so many of us ignore it and have no answer for what death means to our life right now only explains the careless way with which we live our lives. The entitled way with which we spend the breath in our lungs and we don't know if the next one is the last one. The careless way we spend our time. The careless way we abuse our friends and our families. The careless way we just ignore the realities of our life right here and right now and what God has given us to enjoy and how he's given that to us to, to, us to enjoy that we might respond in worship to him. You've got to have an answer for what death means to your life now. And this is what Solomon is trying to to press home. But I want you to see something unique in this. Though in in Ecclesiastes, we've talked a lot. He's He's on the front side of the cross. Solomon can only hope towards what we now see in reverse from the cross. He does say something really interesting here about death that you wouldn't necessarily have expected back then. But by God's grace, he helps you see. He, he doesn't actually accept death as a natural reality. Solomon isn't actually accepting death as a natural product of biology. He's not saying that, oh, well, look, everything around me dies, therefore everything must have a shelf life. It just happens and, and then it dies. Solomon said that death is an evil thing. That life, everything in life, everything that we experience has come through the providential hands of God, and that death is an evil thing. So therefore, death in some sense comes from the hands of God, but yet it's not the way God had intended life. It's an evil thing. And death has come into this story and into this existence because of sin. Solomon has a very refined view of the existence and the origin of of death. Dying is a great evil. Dying is a great evil. Death is an enemy. It is not what God intended for this world, for our life in the beginning when he created us. But, but, we live in a different place than Solomon. But from Solomon's perspective, death was judgment for sin coming from the hands of God. Death, in its origin, is a moral judgment against the rebellion of men. It's a moral judgment against the sin of mankind. Death came into the picture because of our sin. And Solomon's saying it's an enemy. It's not supposed to be here. 
It's not good that you died. And one of the things we do to push this reality aside so easily is we try to make death sentimental. We try to sentimentalize death. That's kind of the new thing. I was reading some stuff that I had, had read years ago, back in my early 20s, before I got saved. Um, some of the nonsense that I was reading back then and the way they talked about death and easing people over into the blessedness of, of what's beyond the grave and this whole idea that we have in this culture to ease the passage from, from life into death and into what's beyond, it's absolute nonsense. And there's no blessedness in death for those who do not find blessedness in God in life. Death is a judgment on our sin. It's an enemy. It's not something that we just embrace as a biological reality. Death reminds us of God's judgment towards our sin and points us then to our hope in Christ and the resurrection. But we sentimentalize death to such a degree that we avoid the reality of, of what it is. It's meant to drive us back to God's grace shown to us in Jesus because the only way to get rid of death was to get rid of sin. That was the only way to get rid of death. That's why Jesus had to come and live our life in our place and die on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And as God raised Jesus from the dead, overcoming both sin and death, he has conquered the grave on our behalf. Solomon's saying death is an evil. It's going to happen, but it's an evil thing that has to happen because of our sin. And you've got to have an answer for how that shapes how you respond to that with the way that you live right now. Right now. And here's what he says. He who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. No sentimentality in death there. No hallmark look at death right there. To them, dogs were despised. Lions were majestic. But it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. And it gets even worse, though. For the living know they'll die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, and the memory of them is forgotten. I mean, how many of you be honest? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you think that when you die, you really would like people to be talking about you for like 20 years? I mean, how many of you think, yeah, I see me too. Um, how many of you think that people will just get together every, every year on that day, they'll gather, have food, remember you and your life and your joys and your grace and all those things. It won't, it won't happen. I mean, here's the reality. I'll be very honest with you. Here's the reality. Our, our son passed away, it was three years ago. And with every, probably every six months to every year, I know fewer people remember. Would we like people to remember? Sure. Yeah, it was our son. But people aren't going to remember. And to hold people accountable for that is foolishness. But you'll do it in your heart. They're not going to remember. I'll be honest with you. I'll be a little more honest with you. Sometimes I forget when it sneaks up on me. April comes around and it gets busy. His birthday is at the end of April. Our other son's birthday is the very next week. Mother's Day is the very next week. And our daughter's birthday is two weeks away. It gets to be a busy season. But sometimes I'll forget, oh, wow, this is when he was born. Yeah. He's not with us. He's not a day-in and day-out reality in our life. You forget. And when you die, people are going to forget about you. That's just the way it is. Your memory is going to get wiped away at some point. How, how many of you can tell me who invented the radio? 
absolutely transform the way that you interact with the world around you now. But you can't remember who it was. They're going to forget. I- I'm sorry. It's going to happen. There's more. Keep going. Their love and their hate when they die, their love and their hate, their envy, it's perished. And forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. So all the pettiness, all the cattiness, all the frustration, all the games that we play with each other because we think we've got another 10 years to do it right, all the foolish ways we try to relate to each other because we think we've got more time, all of those things, gone when you're dead. No more chances. No more chances. And he's pressing home this reality of how then in understanding this should you live your life now? And all that bitterness, is it really worth it? I mean, you don't know if the breath you take next is the last one that you've got. Is it really worth it? Is the pettiness really worth it? Is the struggle really worth it? Is the game you're playing with them really worth it? Because when you're gone, you're gone. You don't get it back. But at least a living dog has a chance to repent. Though he's a dog, at least he has a chance to forgive. At least he has a chance to repent. So it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion, because even as a dead lion, nobody's going to remember you, and it's done. You can't go back and fix it. So how do you live? If that's reality, how do you live? How should understanding that life and the unexpected turns and the certainty of death that have come from the hand of God in response to our sin against him, but the fact that he is governing providentially our lives because of his goodness and his care, guiding us towards his end, how should that shape the way that we live right now? It's probably different than you were taught when you were a kid. Solomon's answer to how we should live now in light of God's providential care and the unexpected turns of life and the certainty of death is probably different than you learned when you were six years old in church. Listen to what he says. This is how you should live. Verse 7, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life, in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Solomon is urging us to live life right now deeply, joyfully, fully, coming from the comfort we have of our life being in the hands of a sovereign God. While you're alive, Solomon said, eat with gladness, eat with joy, get together with people and enjoy them. Get together with people and enjoy food. I mean, this is probably not what you were taught. It's certainly not what I was taught. How do we live deeply and meaningfully and fully in a relationship with God in the life that we find ourselves in right now that's falling apart all around us and we don't know what's to come? And growing up, the natural response is do this and do this and do this to make sure you're on the right path. Solomon says, look, man, go enjoy people. Go enjoy the gifts of God and the grace of God in this life right now. Eat deep. Get together with people that you love. Share your life with them. Be known by them and know them. 
Celebrate God's goodness to you and what he's given you right here and right now. Eat. Deep life, deep spirituality, in some sense, from Solomon's words, and in reality, the life we live here starts at the table. Look at Chris talking about this. It starts at the dinner table. It starts being known by people and knowing other people. This is why we do communities throughout the week. They're, they're not another box that we have to check off of our list so that we know we're doing all the right things. They're an opportunity that we take intentionally to try to be known by people and to know other people, to hear what God is doing in their lives and to celebrate what God is doing in their lives, to encourage them in the gospel, to see where they're struggling, to see where they're weak, to show them where God is strong, to celebrate his grace to us around food together, to live deeply, to enjoy life, to enjoy our food with gladness, with gladness, to enjoy the people that God has given us with great joy, knowing that he has given us those people to help us, to transform us. He's giving us one another as instruments of grace in our lives. Eat with gladness. Drink your wine with joy. That's a command. Drink your wine with joy. Eat with gladness. Drink with joy with those who you love. That's a foreshadowing of what we're going to do for all of eternity. The wedding supper of the Lamb in the presence of God and His Son, we were going to eat a feast and a celebration that nothing we have ever done here on earth can ever compare to. You see, and in these very little realities of life that we so often overlook and neglect, in those things there's joy. In those things there's grace. In those things there's actually the power of God for the transformation of our life as we begin to see these things as gifts of His grace to us. Drink your wine with great joy. Eat with gladness. This is holiness through redemption. I don't know who said it. I remember it stuck in my head for a long time. This is not holiness by abstention. It's holiness through redemption. We don't live as though the world that God created is not good. He created this world as a way to draw us back in worship to him. And Solomon is saying, live deep here now. Understand the grace of God and celebrate the grace of God through these things in your life. If you live trusting in God's goodness that extends into his care over your life, this is what will happen. You will actually enjoy your life. How many people want to enjoy their life? A few of you. That's fine. Some of you come to church because you want us to beat you up because you feel bad for trying to enjoy parts of your life, so you think you should say, I don't want to enjoy my life, but no. God wants us to enjoy our lives. He wants us to enjoy our lives deeply. He wants us to find great joy in the life that we live right here as we understand it coming from his hands. We find deep and lasting and meaningful joy in our life when we understand who he is and what he has done for us and what he is doing in us and through us right now. When you trust in God's goodness and his care over your life and over the world and you can live deep and joyous in this life right now, here's what happens. You you enjoy your wife and you enjoy your marriage. Some of you aren't satisfied with who God is for you and what God has given you in your life and in your marriage and you're trying to enjoy somebody else's. You can't do it. You can't do it. That's a whole other sermon. You can't enjoy someone else's spouse. There is no joy vicariously through osmosis. You can't just enjoy someone else's marriage. God has said, look, live your life. Trust 
in my direction and my comfort and my guidance. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your wife. Work with zeal. Do your work with zeal because when you die, there's no work. You won't be working then. Work now. Work with passion. Work with zeal. Work with a godly ambition. Do it with all of your might. And when you do that, trusting in his comfort and his guidance in this life, you won't live looking backwards. We've talked about that a lot in Ecclesiastes. You won't live looking backwards in a world of regret. I mean, how many people, how many people that you know, that you love, and it's displayed in every movie you watch, how many people get to that point when they realize they're about to take their last breath and all that they're consumed with is regret? All they're consumed with is regret. All the things they could have done or should have done or would have done if they had known when this day was going to happen. And Solomon is saying, trust God right now. Right now. Live with the urgency of eternity, knowing that one day, and you don't know when, you will take your last breath, but it's in the hands of a good and sovereign God. Live your life now. Enjoy the gifts of God now. Enjoy the wife and the spouse that God has given you now. Work with all that you've got and the thing that God has given you right now because when it's done, it's, it's done. It won't be there anymore. So many of us do those things. We, we try to enjoy our life and we try to work hard right now because we're afraid that it's one day it's going to go away. We're afraid that we've got to hold on to it, grab it and keep it, because one day it's, it's going to go away. And here's the thing. Let's let Solomon free you here. Let him free you up. It's going to go away one day. It's going to go away. You're right. One day, all those things you fight so hard to hold on to, all those things you try so hard to grab and keep close and so afraid that you're going to lose one day, so you keep going after them and holding them tight and trying to keep them in here. But yet, one day, they're all going to be gone. You're going to lose it. So enjoy it now. Enjoy it. You keep waiting. Some of your faces, I love this. This is one of my favorite parts about being up here. Even my pain can't keep me from seeing this. Some of your faces, you're just waiting for me to tell you what to do. There's got to be one more point to this thing that's going to come around and it's going to make sense to you. It's really not. It's really not. This is the reality of what he's saying. I'm telling you, it's not a hard text. It's not tough to understand. But it's really tough to embrace and believe. It's going to go away. And God wants you to live now, trusting in who he is and what's to come, and that he knows and that he understands. And when you can begin to do that, you can begin to enjoy your life deeply. You can begin to cherish the people that God has given you. You can begin to cherish the lot that God has given you. You can begin to cherish the life that God has given you. And you can see how God uses you in this life for his purposes and for his glory. Work for God. Live for God. Enjoy the things that he has given you. Enjoy the good of your life. Serve him productively. Care for other people. Because then you will breathe your last and it will go away. Does that make sense? So, here's how we'll wrap it up. When you look at your life and you look at time and you look at all the trials and the unexpected frustrations and 
the twists and the turns that come in and catch you off guard, when you look at the certainty of your death in the light of a sovereign and loving God who cares for his children, who cares for his people, it will make all the difference in how you live your life now. That's what Solomon is trying to say. When you see all the circumstances in your life in light of God's good care for you, it will change the way that you live right now. It will enable you, compel you, and by God's grace, increasingly help you stop, stop living carelessly with the breath that he's given you. By God's grace, it will help you begin to live with the urgency of eternity, seeing God's blessings in the life that he has given you now, seeing the doors that God has opened for you now, seeing the people that God has put into your life now, and experiencing the grace of God in this life right now. And when you begin to see your life through that kinds of lens, what you begin to see, which has been most marvelous for me, most changing for me in the last four or five years, is you begin to see the unexpected twists, the frustrations, the pains and the circumstances. Those are some of the most treasured gifts of God's grace in your life. Because those unexpected twists that you can't see coming, no matter how smart you think you are, are in your life to point you back to the one who can, to remind you that you don't know. You can't control it. You were never meant to control it, but your life is hidden in the hands of the one who can, the one who does, and the one who cares lovingly and deeply for you. Even the unexpected twists become moments of grace, moments of grace that you can look back in your life and see God's care for you, even in some of the most dark frustrating and unclear times in your life. But what Solomon has said throughout Ecclesiastes is that if you look at life apart from God, if you look at life under the sun, left to your own best understanding and your own best reason, the only thing you can come to is the fact that it's enigmatic. It's confusing, it's vain, and ultimately it might even find itself to be meaningless. And we live carelessly, and we live in a shallow pool but when we begin to see our lives in the hands of the living God, sovereign, good, creative God, even in his good providence, trials become moments of meaning. Frustrations become moments of joy. Disappointments become moments for depth and happiness. And my prayer is just this, that God would grant us the capacity to begin to increasingly see life this way. There are going to be flashes and moments when you do, And you're going to wake up one day and see that you missed it again. And my prayer is that our hearts are increasingly cultivated to see life this way. That God would grant us to to seek our meaning, to seek, seek our fulfillment, to seek our satisfaction in Him. So that as we face the uncertainties in life, because we're going to face them. You're going to face them. You're already facing them. You haven't even told us. So as we face the uncertainties in this life, and then ultimately the final certainty that we all face in death, we'll do it with confidence. We'll do it with great joy. We'll live our life here right now in the days that we have with great meaning and great depth. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for 
for the, real, for the realistic portrayal of our life that you give in your scriptures. I love the fact that your word to us does not do an interrun around the realities of life in a fallen world. Lord, help us, help me. I, I know I'm so guilty of this. Help us to live life with a realistically hopeful portrait. I mean, help us to see the realities of life and, and to not think that being transformed by you and hoping in you skirts us around the difficulties in life. But help us to see that we can go through those difficulties and face those circumstances with meaning and with joy and with hope because of who you are. I mean, help us to live realistically. The world is desperate, Father, for your people to live realistically to live in the face of a fallen world, but to live with depth and with hope, with hope that can never deceive. So, Father, help us to lose hope in everything it does. Help us to lose hope in the heresies that grab our hearts, that, that lie, that ultimately tell us lies about who you are. Help us to lose hope in the, in the shallow views of, of death. Lord, help us to lose all hope in and trust that we've placed in anything that flies in the face of who you are and and your grace towards us in Jesus. Lord, and then help us by your grace to live deep. To live deep with one another. Lord, to live deep with you. To not be comfortable with the shallow end of the pool. But Lord, to live, to live for depth with you. To pursue depth with you. Lord, we ask this, that we would be transformed into the images of your son that would reflect your glory and a satisfied heart, that people would see us and they would see us satisfied in you and they would be drawn to you. We ask this, that more people may know you, that more people will be changed by you. In the name of your precious son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.